0: So Matt's away, and (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so that whole generation died in the wilderness, and it was their children, it was the children who were camped there on the plains of Moab, waiting to cross into the promised land. Here's here's a little bit of a, a map, a little topographical one. You can see the Dead Sea there, the black in the bottom that's actually the lowest point on earth the lowest elevation on earth and so the plains of moab that you can see there are them looking towards the promised land and as they cross over the river they'll be in the plains of joab and so chapters three and four tell a spectacular story of another water miracle another splitting of a body of water the crossing of the Jordan River which was at flood stage it's spectacular because it's how God is going to fulfill that promise and more that he had made to Abraham now why is this story so interesting and relevant to us and not just another Sunday school lesson well I think it's because of this the ark's crossing pictures God leading his people into a promised new life. And so it becomes a picture by which we can understand not just what happened to them, but what it means to us through the Lord Jesus. This is the story of the ark more than anything. If you go through chapters 3 and 4 in your ESV, you will underline The Ark of the Lord, Ark of the Covenant, 16 times it's mentioned in these two chapters. This is the story of the Ark. So what is the Ark of the Lord? What does it mean? Why is it so important? Well, actually, it is a wooden box, acacia wood, overlaid with gold. Here is a picture of it. Can you advance that? Now, I spent a little bit of time this week, not that this is very important, but it intrigued me, because there's some debate over whether it was a box like this or whether it's a box that has feet on the bottom. The text isn't entirely clear. I didn't arrive at a conclusion, but I thought it was interesting to mention it to you. This wooden box is overlaid with gold. It's about 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. The two cherubim, angels on top, are made out of cast gold. Uh, the weight estimates of this range from 185 pounds to 615 pounds. I tend to go with the lighter one because those are gold cast rings and those poles Uh That's a lot of weight, especially for four guys to carry for any length of time if it's the upper. But there's really no dimensions given as to the thickness of the gold overlay, the, the size of the cherubim, so they're just estimates. But perhaps the most important thing and the easiest way to think about the ark in this story is that it's God's throne. It symbolizes his presence with his people. And so that ark was Uh, in the tent, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, where God resided amongst his people. In his holiness, he could not be approached. In later scriptures, in the Psalms, it refers to the ark as his footstool because they recognize that even though it's the throne of the king of Israel, the king of Israel is actually the all-powerful God who cannot be contained in a small room a temple, but the ark where he reigns is actually his footstool because he rules over the entirety of the world. And so the importance of this is that in in chapter 3, if you look at verses 2 through 4, Joshua says, at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people. So Joshua had told the leaders of the people, and they go through and they say, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you set out from your place and follow it. So when the ark comes out, you follow it. But stay away from it. See there in verse 4? A distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits. Now, I don't know, you probably don't have your cubit tape measure with you. But 3,000 cubits, roughly 3,000 feet. So just a little over a half a mile. Don't come near it in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said, Consecrate yourselves and be ready. The ark is going to come out of the tent. The king of Israel is going to appear to his people in order to lead them across the Jordan River. And this appearance is called a theophany, an appearance of God to his people. Now the amazing thing about this theophany is that the people had never seen the ark before. Ever since it was created, it was not to be seen because of its holiness. And so in the Old Testament, when the ark is on the move, we have to pay attention because that's when things are happening. I don't don't know if you're familiar with uh, the, the stories of Narnia. If not, get them. You should be. But in the first story, it says when Aslan the lion, the Christ figure, is on the move. When Aslan is on the move, things happen. Winter is gone it's always winter and never christmas and aslan changes that the white witch who's the evil figure is defeated and it's a similar thing in the old testament when the ark moves the people move when the ark moves god is moving let me give you a few interesting details uh, how big this moment is in israel's history so we can understand it because this moment is actually similar to sinai as this chart shows. I'm just going to give you some charts because I don't want to turn this into a lecture, but I do want you to see some of the detail that's in these this story. That just when as when they went to Sinai and God was going to appear to them to give them the law, you can see there's the time element of expectation. Here's when he's going to show up. And the same is there at the Jordan River, get ready, consecrate yourselves because he's coming tomorrow. There was a boundary around the mountain that they were not allowed to cross, and here there's a boundary of 2,000 feet. I'm sorry, 2,000 cubits, 3,000 feet. The leader is elevated at Sinai, who is Moses at the time, and twice in chapter 3 and chapter 4, God says he's going to elevate Joshua so that they think of him the same way they think of Moses. And then finally there's an appearance of God. So the import is pretty clear, isn't it? God is appearing in in person, so to speak. He's going to lead them in the crossing of the Jordan River. And so this promise to Abraham of coming into the land is about to have its first fulfillment as God leads his mighty nation who is in a blessed relationship with him into the land of promise against enemies who are quaking in fear because of their great name. Here's another chart, run through real quick that shows that when this ark moved this time, it was completely different than how it moved through the wilderness. It moved in the time of Moses when God's cloud moved. Here, Joshua directs the movement. The movement was signaled by trumpets under Moses, but now Joshua announces when it's going to move. It was always carried by the Levites, the Kohathite clan, and now it's the actual priests who carry it. And perhaps most significantly, it was always covered by skins. You could never see the ark. And here it is out in the open. And for the first time, the Israelites are going to see their God's throne as it leads them into the promised land. There was a precise order of tribal marching here. The ark is going to lead them to the water, and then everybody's going to go past it. Soldiers will cross over, and so it's a completely different order of the nation moving. Whereas before it led, now the people go on before it. So the point is, again, all this detail is to show this is unique. God has not done this before in the lives of these Israelites. He is coming to lead them into the promised land. And so Joshua's statement then, when he says that they're going to see the ark, they're going to see the unseen for the first time. Can you imagine what the, what the campfires were like that night? What was going to happen? Were they all going to die? Was he going to kill them again? Like their parents always thought he was going to do? The unseen throne ark of the unseen God, too holy to behold, was going to be revealed to them the next day. What a spectacular moment this was going to be. And so that moment, in that morning, something happened that had never happened in Israel before. And I laugh because think of the four priests who got, who got assigned to do this. You want, me to, you want me to do what? You want me to go into the tent and pull back the curtain. That's certain, the day before, the day before, that would have been certain death. And this day, the king was ready to come out and lead his people into his land of promise. Isn't that spectacular? And so he did. They came out with their poles of the ark on their shoulders out of the tent. The king carried by his priests. That's important just to note. The priests did it. The king always has to be accompanied by the priests because the priests are the ones who can bring about the forgiveness of sins. And so he's not just a king showing up. He's a king showing up and the forgiveness element is there that he can stay with his people, the ultimate holy king in an unholy sinful people because of the priestly intercession. The picture just has a whole lot to it, doesn't it? And so leaving the tent, the priests carried their ark, their king down to the river. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Joshua said to the priests, "Take the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people." So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. We need to pause here for a minute before they get to the river, though, because I want to unpack a little bit about what I just said about the king and the priests. The ark is is a powerful symbol, a powerful thing. Not just that God's presence is among his people, not just that, that there's a, a priestly element to him, but, but it's the symbol that he is in covenant with them, that they are, they are partners in this agreement to live together. He is their God, and they are his people. He is the one who had, had brought them out of slavery from Egypt. He had redeemed them with the blood of the Passover lamb. He had given them the laws at Sinai of how they were going to live with him. And and it was even out of those laws that they created the tabernacle and the ark itself. This, This partnership, this agreement, this covenant governed all of life. And so as the king approached, he was their God. They were his people. He was providing forgiveness for them for their sins so that he could reside in with them. So we can't miss that priestly element. This was the full revelation of who he was. They'd never seen him like this before. The holy king, the forgiving king, the conquering king, the saving king, the redeeming king. All of these elements are packed into the image of this ark proceeding to the river's edge. This is an astounding moment of God being revealed to his people. And who could do such a thing like this? It was actually Joshua, wasn't it? Let's consider for a moment his role in this. Because a large part of the miracle is to elevate Joshua. Look at these two verses, one in chapter 3 and one in chapter 4. The Lord says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel, so that they might know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then at the end, after they're all crossed, The Jordan. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Now, that's a real clue for us that when we read this story, we don't identify with Joshua. Joshua is somebody else. Joshua has given an authority beyond Moses, he can pull back the curtain and live even beyond Aaron the high priest. He has a unique position in God's story. We recognize in him a picture of the Lord Jesus, don't we? In fact, their names are the same. Joshua in Hebrew is the same name as Jesus translated out of the New Testament for us. These two Joshua's in Scripture are the two who are given the authority to ultimately reveal the full glory of God. Joshua's elevated to that point. And so it's really striking to me to note the interplay between Joshua and God here. That God comes and says, okay, here's the plan, here's what we're going to do. And then Joshua directs it. So as, as the Lord and as Joshua get on the same page, the Father says, here's what I want to have happen. And then Joshua does it. And the Lord submits to Joshua's direction. So you tell the ark what to do. Here's what I want to happen. You tell me what to do and I'll do it. Do You see what I'm saying there? And so the Lord's plan is, is being done and yet there's this mutuality. It's remarkable. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in John where he says that he and the Father are one and, and he's doing the will of the Father and, and the Father is glorifying him and Jesus is then glorifying the Father and and there's this mutuality because they're on the same page together accomplishing God's plan. It's an astounding picture of how God uses His people, but primarily the Christ, that we can understand how, it's, how they work together. Even more striking for me, I have to say, is the amount of communication between them. That for this miracle to take place without a hitch involves a lot of communication between the lord and joshua i think that also mirrors the close communication that jesus had with his father that that they're communicating constantly to accomplish his will it was a challenge to me i think sometimes i get so busy doing the will of god that i i don't realize the importance of the communication with him in it it's a challenge to the where the prayer element is in the Christian's life isn't it sometimes I think that we we might bypass it a little too much in the doing but the example here is the constant communication and constant partnership that God has with his chosen Joshua it's a very challenging aspect of the story for me And perhaps it is for you, too, as you reflect on your prayer life. So Joshua is elevated. The king has appeared for the first time. Nobody has died, um, but you have to stay far away from it. And that's going to change. We'll talk about that next week, actually. But the 3,000 feet on either side... And so it would have been a very great distance if the ark was in the middle and the people were split on either side, which is how I envision it. So there's a half a mile here and a half a mile here. They're, they're over a mile apart with the ark in the middle by itself. And they progress towards the river. So the crossing of the Jordan. The Jordan, as I mentioned earlier, is at flood stage. It would have been over 100 feet wide at, at several places in it, this is what Richard, the, the commentator Richard Hess says, several places in it, it would have been over 10 feet deep. So this is a significant miracle. Sometimes we kind of think it's the weak, the weak stepchild to the crossing of the Red Sea, but this would have been a big-time miracle. Unpassable to the Israelites. Maybe the soldiers could have swum it, but the women and children, there's no possible way. And we need to understand that as the very end of our passage that Troy read for us says, that the drying up of the Jordan is like the drying up of the Red Sea that they passed over. That These are bookend miracles. They go together. And so the the Red Sea was split, you can see there, as they come out of Egypt. He brings them out by the same method that he brings them in when he splits the Jordan. And so this miracle goes together. It's no mistake then that it happens on the 10th day of the first month. Do you know what that day is? That's the day when they chose the Passover lamb. And so the redemption from Egypt is intimately tied to the redeeming entry into the promised land. This is all part of (coughs) God's plan. These miracles go together. And in the middle you see then the wilderness wandering the time of learning to trust and obey. Now, if you were here, we talked about the crossing of the Jordan in Sunday school a few weeks ago, and I mentioned that this is one of the few pictures that we actually have out of this period of the Bible history. Here's a picture of the actual crossing of the river. (laughs) That is a massive ark, isn't it? There's no way four guys are picking up something made out of gold like that and the picture it pictures god leading his people so when the feet of the priests touched the water instantly the river split before them ah, what a sight that must have been the people were facing uh into the promised land and so the water on their left would have continued flowing down to the Dead Sea but the water on their right would have been a little more spectacular it would start racing back up the valley some 18 miles to the town of Adam where it piled up in a great heap could you imagine being a guy fishing up at Adam and all of a sudden the entirety 18 miles of the Jordan River comes through that would have been kind of freaky One moment the Jordan River was racing along, and the next minute there was about 18 miles of dry riverbed with a towering wall of water. Thousands of jaws dropped because the Lord had done it again. The water was split, and the people crossed over with the ark standing in the middle of the dry riverbed until everybody was on the other side. the Israelites knew what that water meant. Their God had made a path for them into the promised land just as he had made a path for them out of Egypt. The barrier to entrance was removed, and they also knew that when that wall of water let loose, it was going to wash away everything in its path just as the Red Sea had swallowed the Egyptians. So it's no surprise you read there in verse 10, the people passed over in haste to get to the other side. (coughs) But look at... Again, at four, the very last verse of chapter four. All the peoples may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and you may fear the Lord your God forever. And three ten says that this is how you'll know the Lord, is, the living God, is among you, and He'll drive you out. He'll drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites, and that He's the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of the whole earth. This miracle actually wasn't just for the Israelites to see this was for all peoples to recognize who God was if you think of the soldiers on the walls of Jericho looking out at that spectacle of the of the ark by itself flanked over a mile with the people on this side wondering what is going on they were prepared for war but they weren't prepared for this and they would have watched the water to their left racing up the valley They knew what it meant too. If you read the first verse of chapter 5, it tells you. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, what happened? Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. They knew. The God of Israel has done it again. There's no stopping him. There's no advance. There's there's no way to stop his advance. And their morale drained away as fast as the Jordan River. Doom. Doom was approaching Jericho, and they knew it. That's why you read at the beginning of chapter 6 that they had closed up the gates. No one could go in, and no one could go out. And so God led his people across the Jordan. Chapter 4, verse 15 says, The Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests to come up out of the Jordan. There's that mutual ality again. And the priests bearing the ark of the Lord came up from the middle of the Jordan. And when the soles of their feet stepped onto dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. That's, that's just a massive understatement. Think of all the water coming rushing down that valley. That would have been amazing. And that brings us then to the memorial stones. The memorial stones are the significant element of this chapter um, and what this is about. And as Troy read for us, um, 12 men one from each tribe, were to take a stone from where the priests stood in the middle of the river. And these would have been significant stones, as heavy as they could carry. And they were to carry them over with them. These stones came from the place of the miracle, and they were going to make a big pile of them into Gilgal, one for each tribe, piled together. And that was going to be a sign and a memorial to them, a memorial that they were to remember forever. Memorials are not new to the Bible. There are about thirteen of them so far in the storyline of a number of different things, and they're significant things or places or events that the people are supposed to remember for a reason. Now, let me give you another quick chart so we don't uh, belabor this. The red, uh, the, the red, uh, I've alliterated it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Something's designated a memorial here. It's the stones. And they have a duration, aren't they? They're supposed to last forever. Generation after generation after generation is supposed to be able to point to those stones and fathers tell their children what mothers too. but what, does the, what do those stones mean? And they remember it. It's not just as though there's a, there's a place that they remember, though. Um, like this happened here, the battle of Gettysburg happened at this spot. These memorials proclaimed a message. There was a declaration that was being made, a pivotal message to all people that God had done this year and that they were to fear him forever because of his majesty of the king what he did and so twice the text asks when your children say what do these stones mean and twice it answers the Lord of Israel dried up the river so that you could pass over and that was in the fulfillment of his promises that was so that you would recognize who he is they meant something to them the 12 stones one for each tribe declared that this was a miracle of God's redemptive plan to bring his people into a place of residence with him, a new land, a new life, a new intimacy. His ark could be exposed, and we're going to see next week they would be right up next to it because he was a God who wanted to live with his people in the promised land. Those memorials declared that God keeps his promises, and no barrier can prevent that. And Israelites were to always remember that God always keeps His promises. We celebrated such a memorial just a few minutes ago, didn't we? That communion, we remember the goodness of God in redeeming His people through the death of Christ. And certainly that's the forgiveness of our sins, but even more, it's the new life that He offers as He rose from the dead. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, Paul says, about communion. He's the risen Lord. And so we celebrate our stone of remembrance is the stone that was rolled away from the tomb. That's what we remember. What he has done to remove the barrier of sin and death so that we might be welcomed into the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. And that stone rolled away from the tomb is our memorial stone that we can always, must always point to And say, what does that stone mean? It's new life for any who will trust in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who's the giver of life. And so we remember, we have to remember, so that we don't grow weary and give in to sin like that first generation of Israelites did. So we don't grow weary and stop following Jesus, so that we remember to speak the gospel to those who are still in rebellion against God. We remember so that we always declare to our children The majesty of this miracle of Jesus has rolled away stones so that they too by faith might have deliverance through him. We remember so that we endure and we declare. The meaning of the stones is corporate. It's for all of God's people. It's not primarily an individual thing. These are not stones of remembrances of memories, the good thing that God has done for each of us individually but it's what he's done to keep his promises. It's, it's, it's a common thing to think of the stones of remembrance we keep track of what God has done for us. That's a good thing to do because like the Israelites, we can be so quick to forget all that God has done, his graciousness to us and the prayers that he has answered. But there's a danger there too. I remember at one time my wife Holly had a little water feature fountain and little stones on it that she had remembered had remembered and, and, and wrote down what God had done for us as he led us through our lives and how he had provided for us. So important to remember so that we don't become like the old Israelites. But we have to be careful to remember that our individual stones of remembrance are just that, they're individual. And while we might write on the stone the good things that, cr- that God has done for us, sometimes we might fail to take note that it is through the difficulties and the disciplines of life that we are most molded into the image of Christ. Those tend not to make stones of remembrance. Holly and I knew a wonderful godly lady back in Wheaton, Illinois. Her name was Mary Lou Bailey. She was married to Joe Bailey, who was an author and an editor. And they had a lot of children. And sadly, they lost quite a few through various reasons. Joe even wrote a book called The View from a Hearse after losing one of the children. And then Joe himself died, and Mary Lou was left grieving. She still had a few children, a life full of grief. Our dear friend in Spokane named Robin, who was our pastoral administrator at the church, had two daughters, and she lost them both. And then her husband died from a heart attack while he was hiking in the Cascades. What do you do when your stones of remembrance are all gravestones? What do you do when your stones of remembrance are failed jobs or business endeavors or kids that don't follow Jesus or failed marriages or terminal illnesses or failed courses in school or betrayal by friends or loved ones? You see, if those are our stones of remembrance and we treat them as as individual stones of remembrance, we might assess that God is trying to hurt us instead of help us. And we fall into the exact same trap as that first generation of Egyptians who constantly thought that God was trying to kill them as he was leading them to the promised land. But if we remember that these memorial stones are first a declaration to us and to the world that God is faithful and he is trustworthy and he keeps his promises. And what do these stones mean? It means that he will do what he says. Then we have the right perspective. And every other stone in life, whether it is a stone of joy, of sorrow, of height or depth, the mountaintop or the valley floor, we know that those individual stones are linked to that bigger stone that has been rolled away so that we might have the new life and enter in to an eternity with our God. That's the power of these memorial stones. And just as Israel entered into the promised land, armed for war, did you catch that in verses uh, 12 and 13? 40,000 ready for war. They didn't go into the promised land to just sit back and eat bonbons and watch soap operas. It was going to be battle. And so for us, too, our new life is going to be full of struggles and difficulties. And that is why the scriptures tell us to remember, to endure, to remember the faithfulness of God, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus who paid for our sins, to remember the stone that was rolled away, to remember that the enemy of death has been defeated, and to look forward, proclaiming his death until he comes again. That's what these memorials can do for us. It's by remembering the great faithfulness of God in the past that prepares us to expect and hope for his great faithfulness in the future regardless of what happens. Let me say that again. It's by remembering the great faithfulness of God in the past that prepares us to expect and hope for his great faithfulness in the future regardless of what happens. Memorials, memorial stones like the Lord's Supper, like the empty tomb, what do they mean? They mean that God can be trusted, that he keeps his promises, that it might not be our generation that sees it, but some generation is going to see the Lord return, that God offers salvation to people, that Jesus has conquered all, and that we live expectantly of his return, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That's the power of memorials. Let's take just a few minutes and think through that passage what the Lord would have to say to you through it before we sing our last song together.